A novel technique has been solving cold cases all over the country, all without a single drop of DNA. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We are Crossing the Line. Welcome to Crossing the Line, my new weekly true crime podcast. You might know me from my true crime TV work, where I've been a featured expert on dozens of shows, or possibly from the more than 40 books I've written. I also had a series on investigation discovery called Dark Minds, in which I chase serial killers around North America investigating unsolved cold cases. My passion, though, is rooted really in victims' advocacy work and helping crime victim families. You may know me from my other podcast, Paper Ghosts, an investigative series with iHeartRadio. Joining me today is my executive producer and co-writer of that operation, Christina Everett. So I want to welcome Everett to the show, and I'm excited for this journey we're embarking on together. Hi, Phelps. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am excited. And honestly speaking, I'm a little bit nervous about getting this operation going because it's been talked about for so long. And here we are all of a sudden. (laughs) I'm excited for people to get to hear what I think is the real you because they've been hearing your voice Uh through our narrative series and through your books. And I feel like they're going to get a better sense of who you really are. For good or bad. (laughs) So why did you decide to do a weekly podcast now? Here's the thing about that. I was approached for many years to do a podcast, but I always poo-pooed it away because I wasn't ready or I didn't think the space required a new voice. But as the space grew, I started listening to true crime podcasts. And the more I started to notice a void that I think needed to be filled I decided to throw my hat in the ring. You know, I get the comedians. I get the cyber sleuths turned into podcasters. For me, it is what it is. They're successful, some of them. And look, you can't argue with that. Right. I may not always agree with them, but I figured what I can do is offer a different point of view, my point of view. Yeah. And you can also share your personal experiences and knowledge that not many people know about. Also, access. I mean, in this world of investigation, it really is about access. And over 20 years, I've built up a... You have a lot of it. Yeah. I've built up a rapport with detectives all over the country, all different sorts of investigators, serial killers, murderers, that sort of thing. So my goal here is to allow listeners, true crime fans, to step into the world that I've been in for a long, long time now. When it came time to figure out what the show was going to be about and who else I wanted as a partner, another voice, Everett came up. She was one of the first people who came to mind. For listeners who don't know, Everett has kept me in check throughout our time working together on Paper Ghosts. We've had some battles, that's for sure, but that's a conversation (laughs) for another time. Seriously speaking, she has an incredible ear and mind for this stuff. And being in this business for as long as I have, that's rather unique. And I thought if I could just teach her how to investigate people and give her the access that I have, I'd have the perfect partner in crime. Thanks, Phelps. I feel like if you ask any of my friends, I've always been that one who's 
pretty good novice stalker, but after working alongside you for a couple of years now, I feel like you have taught me a thing or two about how to investigate people in a better way. I think what struck me with you too is the late night texts as we're watching the same thing and we're like, <laughs> did you just see that fucking episode of whatever? <laughs> oh my God. And so that kind of told me we were thinking along the same lines a little right. bit. This is all about rapport, really. You know, investigating crimes is about rapport. Yeah, I don't have very many friends that are willing to watch as many true crime documentaries and series as I do. So it was nice to be able to text someone about a heinous crime that I'm watching and they understand. It is. It's about rapport because when you're interviewing somebody, whether it's for a cold case investigation, whether it's for a book, whether it's for Paper Ghosts, a podcast, you have to have a rapport with that person to get the most out of them or they're mm -hmm. not going to feel comfortable with you. So we immediately had that rapport and I, I knew that we were going to get the best out of each other because we fought a lot. <laughs> if we agreed on everything, what good is that? That's true. I don't need a yes person. Oh, I'm know? not that person. You definitely are not that person. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. We're going to be covering some cases on the episode today. But first, I want to talk a little bit about why crossing the line exists. I've been around the true crime game for 20 plus years now, and I'm excited to bring this show to listeners. It pulls together everything I've done in the profession during that time span. And truly, I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring new stories. I'm going to talk with experts. I'm going to rage about what bothers me in the genre. And let me tell you, a lot does these days. And what always keeps me coming back to it. But most important, I want to allow crime victims and their families a space to speak their minds and their hearts. So it's important for me to give this space, part of it anyway, to victims of crime. So every week we'll dive into lesser known cases or tackle a part of the system that's broken. And we'll discuss how we can actually change it. We'll be talking to families of victims, thanks in part to Phelps's relationship that he's developed with so many of them over the years. And we'll bring in detectives who have actually worked the cases that we'll be talking about. And sometimes we'll talk to the killers themselves. So Phelps, you and I have very different connections to true crime. Do you want to share with the listeners a little bit about your personal ties with it? Yeah, it's no secret. I think at this point that my sister-in-law was five months pregnant and strangled to death with a telephone cord and a pillowcase over her head in Hartford, Connecticut. And how has that impacted me? To be honest, it changes over time. The older I get, the more I clearly see now. And in 2017, I wrote a book and I talked a lot about this case and writing that book broke me, literally broke me. I had what was called in the 1970s, a nervous breakdown, basically. How do I continue to process this many years later? It's a painful wound every time I open this up and go into it. What was your relationship like with her? My sister-in-law and my brother had drug issues. I took her to probate court and my brother, and I took her kids away from her. So we were wow. at war. We were at war when wow. she was murdered. It was torturous at the end. So think about that. Someone you, you love, you do something that you think is best for their children, 
and you're at war with them and then they're murdered. Right. So you can never now make up, you know? Mm -hmm. If she was here today, I would probably be making amends to her. Right. For the way that I treated her, knowing what I know now, right? I was using at the time alcohol. I got sober when I was 29. I've been sober 26 years, but at the time I was a drunk. So this thing I did was rooted in the fact that they were worse than I was. I didn't see myself as an addict. I saw them as the addict because they were doing drugs. I wasn't, I was just drinking. And that's how we justify things in our head. So I took the kids literally from one addiction circumstance and put them into another. But I didn't know this until many years later when I started writing that book and I started staring at this story back at me when I was approaching 50 years old. I was in my 20s when I took them to probate court. So everything changes in time. Your perspective, what you learn, the wisdom you get out of situations, if you're willing to look at it. So there's a lot of mixed feelings about all of that. I hated her when she was murdered. I literally hated her and she hated me. Mm-hmm. Some years after her murder, my brother at 47, he dies. And I say it's like the longest suicide on record because after she was murdered, he took his addiction and just took it full throttle after that. Mm. It explains a lot to me of how you now approach cases and how you work so hard to help families find some kind of inkling of closure because it feels like you didn't get that. Yeah, that's a good point, Everett. I've sat in so many living rooms of crime, murder, victims, families, and interviewed them and spoke to them. And there's an immediate rapport when I sit down with them because we both know how we're feeling, right? You can relate. Yeah. I mean, I can't really sympathize, empathize with a guy who lost his 12-year-old daughter to a rape and murder, but I can certainly understand what his family is going through. It's a different take on, on this. It Which really not is. not many people can. Right. And it just so happens that I am in this space, this genre, uh, and I've been writing books and doing TV and et cetera all these years. So people ask me all the time, was your sister-in-law's murder the impetus for you going into this? And it wasn't. It really wasn't. I mean, I, I didn't know I was a true crime guy the day before I became a true crime guy. In fact, my sister-in-law's case is part of what we'll be talking about later in the episode. Everett, we've talked about true crime now for years, and we've spent 15-hour days working on it together. And I never really asked you what got you interested in true crime to begin with. I think my interest in the genre originally stemmed from just my curiosity as a kid and now as an adult. My earliest memory of anything that can relate to this is I was in Germany with my family visiting some family friends and there was a storm out. There's no TV, no cable. And as a kid, I was going crazy. I looked through this old library in the place where we were staying and the only books that appealed to me were a series of Nancy Drew books. Ah. It was just that concept of this young girl who is helping find answers and helping solve mysteries that appealed to me. She empowered you. I guess so. It was something that I was always doing. I was asking way too many questions just because I want to know the how and the what of how things are done. 
And I guess it just slowly evolved into more fascination with true crime because it's connected in some way, right? Some years before that, I was reading the Hardy Boys. Oh, so. there you go. And so I'm from Los Angeles, and I feel like it's cliche to say now because of how it's entered the zeitgeist, but... You know, the OJ trial was a very significant part of my childhood in that. Right in your face. It was right there where I lived and our teachers would turn on the TV and we'd watch the trial no every kidding. day. No kidding, really? Yeah. And the trial was a long time. So it gave me a lot of opportunity to really just understand how this system somewhat works or how the process works. Well, let me ask you what you thought of the trial back in that day. Not now, back in that day. What were your thoughts and feelings about what was going on? I mean, it was my first time as a kid just understanding what a trial is really like, right? And right. Which doesn't represent how most court cases are because this was, right at the time, the longest trial in history. It was just fascinating of just seeing them analyzing the littlest things. So I was fascinated with like- If the glove don't fit you must acquit, you know? And it it was fascinating to see how DNA and little blood droplets come into effect, how footprints in mud comes into effect, because it was basically like in my backyard. And how good lawyering can get a guy off. Yeah, and because it literally was right there where I was, my dad will hate that I'm telling the story, but I was so fascinated that I would have him drive me to OJ's house and do the drive from OJ's house to Nicole's condo to see how long it can actually take because I wanted to know if what they were saying in court was actually viable. I wanted to see if it's actually possible for him to make that drive in the time that he said he You were recreating the crime scene. I I was, because I just wanted to know if it's possible. You know, I wanted to know if it was true. I wanted to see the narrow entryway. You had that investigative spirit. So how old were you at the time? So I was around 12 or so during that time. Nancy Drew's age. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't connect those dots. What a traumatic experience for a 12-year-old, though, to witness that trial. Yeah. and Because it's brutal. It's a brutal crime, right? So we can never forget that it's a brutal, brutal crime. Yeah. And so seeing how the whole thing played out, it just kind of piqued my curiosity even more into how to solve mysteries, not necessarily murders. It's not that I'm into the gore and the guts of these things, but it's just the unknown. Also, it taught you how to fuck up a case too, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) how other people can, not maybe how I can. Yeah. But You know, so that curiosity led me to study journalism in college, and I ended up working as a reporter and then an editor for many years. So that led me to combine all my interests with true crime and now executive producing podcasts. I want to make a point here. I value and trust your opinion on these things, bar none. So that's one of the reasons that I invited you on the show weekly is because I think your opinion on this stuff whether things are worth watching or whether they're crap, mm-hmm. whether there are problems in them we can talk about, what you're reading. I think that's going to add a lot to this. Yeah. Those are opinions I won't hold back. And I don't want this all to be heavy. It's not going to all be heavy, this show. I mean, we're going to talk about dramas. We're going to talk about true crime documentaries. 
the other thing is if I disagree, I'm going to let you know about it as I have in the past. Oh, I know you will. But I've also learned to be very careful about this because we're both very sensitive people. (laughs) Who is? Me? Get out of here. You're sensitive. I'm dead inside. What are you talking about? Oh, my God. I wouldn't say that. so not sensitive at all. Well, here's what I'll say about that. We made an agreement very early on that nothing we say is personal. Correct. I don't take anything personal. I do. I take everything personal. You know, you, you go on TV, you write books. Trust me, you take stuff personal because the thousand five-star reviews you get, you don't pay attention to. You only pay attention to the one that says you're a piece of shit. True. I guess ask me this after we get some reviews and I'll be in a, I'll be in a fetal position under the desk, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm going to be like flipping the bird to those sorts of people. You do it and you tell me. So we're going to go deep. Every week, the listeners are going to hear about new developments that we're learning about in cases that we've covered and in the other high-profile cases that are happening all around the world. This first episode... We've chosen a theme and a case about a little-known crime-solving technique that's being used to solve cold cases that have been frozen solid. And some of these cases are, you know, 20 years old, 30 years old. What's genius about this crime-solving method is that it only costs $2. And if you can believe it, that $2 is paid by the criminals themselves. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll dig into more when we get back. In the last decade or so, huge strides have been made in solving cold cases. Touch DNA and familial DNA, forensic genealogy matches, are helping us get closer to killers we thought we'd never catch, seemingly every day. But in the real world of policing, that science costs big money. Tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds upon hundreds of hours of personnel power. And the truth of the matter is, Smaller police forces don't have any of those resources, but there's this unique invention, let's call it, that's solving cold cases around the country. It only costs a couple of bucks, and the criminals themselves, they fork over the money. And, well, you can't get much more low-tech than this. Everett, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, in the early 2000s, there was a Florida-based special agent named Tommy Ray who heard on the news that the U.S. Army had been given decks of cards with pictures and descriptions of enemies of the state, including Saddam Hussein and those who worked closely with him. So Agent Ray suddenly had the thought of another group of people who spend a lot of time playing cards, inmates. It seemed kind of like a crazy idea at the time, but he brought it to his higher-ups. Here are some playing cards that we can include the names, pictures, and descriptions of the crimes that lead to cold cases of the missing and murdered in Florida. Have I ever told you how I refer to Florida in my serial killer lectures? I'm afraid to ask, but I feel like you're going to tell me regardless. I don't know if I should alienate all those listeners right off the bat, but if you look at Florida on a map, it's the drain of the United States. Oh, Jesus. So everything drains down into Florida, including all the transients and all the murder people. I've written seven books about Florida murder cases. I've spent more time in Florida than any other state because of murder. I would like to take this time to say that 
Phelps' opinions do not reflect mine. <laughs> I've been to Orlando and it was very fun. Yeah, Disney Epcot, World is baby. not a reflection of what goes on in Florida. <laughs> Let me tell you that. But so more seriously speaking, and look, I don't mean to offend anybody in Florida. That's just a joke. Please give us five stars. It's true. The Florida Department of Corrections had playing cards printed and distributed to thousands of inmates down there. Tips started to trickle in. Just when it seemed like it may have all been a waste of time, Tommy Ray got the call. They had made their first arrest. In fact, Florida authorities solved three murders in three months after the program was introduced. So it was a proven success right off the bat. Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about why those cold case cards actually work. In a lot of cases, they are the only cards that are available at the Department of Corrections commissary. So in turn, the inmates themselves have to cough up the $2 to cover the cost of the cards. Love that. Love that. So anytime these decks are distributed, the leads start coming in, and often by the hundreds. I love the idea that you make them pay. The brilliance is in the way the cards are designed, because the first question you might ask is, why would one inmate drop a dime on another? In the end, it's really all about self-preservation. If an inmate has a tip on a cold case, they are likely scared of sharing the information because of repercussions or even violent payback. Lots of crimes go unsolved because of this. But with the playing cards, they can call a confidential tip line and give up what they know. And nobody knows anything. They can barter and in some cases even qualify for a shortened sentence or get a monetary reward. But that's if the tip leads to an actual arrest, right? Right, right. And, and that's really with any reward. For some, incentive is motivation. For narcissists especially, it's all about self-incentives. I love that we're talking about this today because there's really not a lot of coverage about this stuff. You know, when we were doing our research, I found that a spokesperson for the DEX had said that it's like interviewing 93,000 inmates at once. Love that. So it's so effective, and the cards are being distributed in a number of state prisons right now. Alabama, Connecticut, Ohio, Utah, Colorado, Washington, Rhode Island, and, of course, Florida. According to a Slate.com article from 2016, Michael Sullivan, the chief inspector in the Connecticut office of the chief state's attorney, said, It all comes down to loose lips and boredom. Inmates brag to one another about their past exploits. Look, you spend 24-7 with a person in an 8x8 cell. It's very common for these folks to talk about the dirty deeds they've done over the years. I love loose lips and boredom. What a quote. I mean, that's really, it's so true. Every tip gets authorities and families closer to the truth. We all know that. And in cold cases, it, it's the smallest piece of information. I've learned as an investigator myself that sometimes even the person giving you the information doesn't know how important it is to the overall picture. The article noted that these cold case cards are the only playing cards in the Connecticut prison system. You can't get another deck there. Everett, I just want you to picture this scenario for a minute. You and your cellies, you're hanging around, sitting at the table, and you sit down to play cards, and the only deck of cards that you can use is 52 unsolved cold case murders or missing people. And you start dealing, and you get your five cards, and you're looking at your five cards, and 
bang, you see someone you recognize on the card. You see a victim, right? That I know. That you know. Right. And you have information in that case. Right. And there's a number at the bottom there. Mm-hmm. You immediately go to your CEO and you say, hey, I have information here. It's totally anonymous. Right. Because all you have to remember is, hey, 10 of hearts. Yeah. And it helps everybody in the end. It does help everybody in the end. And it's incentive as we talked about it. It's like, maybe I can get two years chipped off of my 10-year sentence. Or maybe I can get a reward. Or God forbid, maybe I can do something good for the community. You see someone you know, or you see some facts written on a card that you remember some guy three years ago bragging about in the yard. You can actually buy the card yourself, right? What do you mean like the public? Yeah, you can order the cards online. Or you can actually go online to some states and you can see the entire deck of cards as a website. That's crazy because when you're a true crime nerd like me, this is exactly the type of weird gift that you hope to get in your stocking at Christmas. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some cases that have been solved using nothing but a deck of cards, a little time and people, convicts who are willing to take the lead and do something good. We'll see you back here in a minute. So let's get into some of the cases that have been solved. You can actually see when you search for these cards online, how many of them are stamped with solved or arrest made. Let's actually start with where the whole movement began. Let me guess. Florida. (laughs) Right. In Florida. So one of the first three cases that these cards helped solve was the death of a man named Thomas Wayne Grammer, a 37-year-old meth dealer. He was killed in 2004 after being shot in his home during a commission of a robbery. And years later, the tip came in. An inmate in Polk County, where the cards were first rolled out, told investigators that he had heard a man talking about Grammer's murder. But he didn't actually believe him at first. You know, and that's exactly how they envisioned the cards working. Some dudes in jail will conflate things they've done. I mean, we all know that. Right. Maybe to seem tougher than they actually are or whatever. I think there's a ton of bullshitting going on. Scumbags tend to think they're more important than they are, but it's it's the ego-centered thinking that works well for this type of crime-solving technique, actually. Right. It wasn't until the inmate was playing with that first deck of cold case cards that he saw the three of spades, which had outlined the exact murder that he had heard about. Jason Seawright, the killer, was eventually convicted and sentenced to 12 years in prison. 12 years in prison for murder? This is what I'm talking about when I talk about Florida. This guy got 12 years for killing another person. You know what I mean? I've written books about people who haven't even been at the murder scene and got life in Florida. How many years do you get for eating someone's face off when you're on bath salts? For biting someone's face off? That's my favorite. In the garage? You remember that case? No, on the highway. It was on the highway. (laughs) Phelps, do you want to talk about how the cards play out in your home state? Yeah. The Connecticut chief state's attorney has said that the cards, quote, led directly or indirectly to nine cold cases that have been solved since the program began in 2010 in Connecticut. So my sister-in-law's case is in the second edition, the, the second deck of cards. She's the 10 of hearts. And I don't know, it, it's hard for me to even look at the card That's one of the last pictures taken of her that's on that card. I think it's only months before she was murdered. You can even see on that card that she is pregnant. So 
it's a tough thing for me to go back to because I've done so much work in that area psychologically. It's hard for me to even look at that card. Phelps, thanks for being so candid with this stuff. I think it's helpful to understand how effective these cards can be. That's why I thought it was such a cool topic for us to discuss because it's something that not many people know about and hopefully will help you and your family. Now that she's on a card, have there been any leads in her case? I can say this. I can say that I don't know if it came from the cards, but I got a call from the detectives working her case late last year after 20-something years, and they told me they were close. And I really don't want to say much more about what they said. Right. They didn't say that it was from the cards, but I, I got a really good feeling that it was from the cards. Wow. Yeah. Well, why don't we shift over to one of the cases in the Connecticut cold case decks that have been solved? Yeah, there's a murder of a young guy named uh, Derek Comrie, who, who was truly in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's one of those freak occurrences that could happen to anyone, which is the scary part of this. It was January 2006. Derek was 20 years old from Harford County. He was at a high school basketball game passing out flyers for a party he was going to throw a few days later. According to that Slate.com article we previously mentioned, Quote, after the game, Comrie was sitting in the passenger seat of a friend's car when a man walked up to him and shot him in the face. Afterwards, all the police could say about the killer was that he had braids in his hair and was dressed in a puffy black coat with a fur-lined hood. I mean, this guy is shot while he's sitting in a car. And the murder has remained unsolved for years. Right, until one day at the end of 2010, a tip came through from someone who was serving time in a Connecticut prison. The inmate had been playing with a deck of cold case cards and saw an image of Derek Comrie's face along with some facts on his case on the nine of clubs. Wow. When he realized he had once heard a fellow inmate talking about shooting Comrie, the tipster called the hotline number printed on the bottom of the card and told authorities what he knew. In 2015, as a result of the tip from the cards, Comrie's killer was sentenced to not 12 years in prison, but 37 years in prison. That's a fucking sentence. That's almost four decades in prison right. for shooting a guy in the face and killing him. That's a sentence, okay, that I can live with. I can't live with 12. Now, what are the drawbacks to this system, to these cards? I really, truly don't see any drawbacks at all other than the danger factor for the person coming forward, right? Right. There's a risk. There's definitely a risk, but they're protected fairly well, specifically by the anonymity of the system set up around the deck of cards. So it's really a great program and it works all by itself 24 hours a day, right? Mm -hmm. My favorite story about the cards so far is about a group of men playing go fish <laughs> in a Florida prison, shocking, and helped solve a three-year-old cold case. I mean, that's Let's just... go fish. Yeah, that's hilarious. I haven't played that since grammar school. <laughs> Last I heard, the cards were being distributed in prisons across 18 states, which is phenomenal to me. Uh, I am very pleased about the program and that it's just growing all over the country. Of course, the arrests are great for the authorities, but for us, it all comes back to the families, right? Every time a case is solved or even inched forward, it gives the people that are close to the victim 
a little bit of hope that answers will come someday. Yeah. Every second of every day, there's hope for the families of the victims on those cards. Because at any minute, a case can be solved. That's what I love. And I want to be sure to shout out WPRI is a local news station in Rhode Island that has done some amazing reporting on the cold case cards, as well as featuring unsolved crimes each week. Check out their videos on YouTube. They really get into what the families go through with these. For example, the daughter of one Rhode Island victim, Jacqueline McKenna, is all for the program. Her mom, Cynthia, is printed on the five of clubs. And she said in an interview with the news station, there are 52 families in this deck, 52 families that are searching for answers every single day. And I just happen to be one of them. I just love that. And my family just happens to be one of them with the Ten of Hearts and Diana. So, you know, you make an arrest in one of these cases on the cold case cards, that offender's DNA now gets put into CODIS in the system and bang, you could arrest a serial offender. So you could actually be solving 10 crimes. Right. Yeah. So everything about this is a good thing. So that's it for the cold case deck of cards. We've got some really interesting cases and topics to discuss in the coming weeks. So we'll see you here next week. Sources from today's episode come from a series on Rhode Island cold cases from WPRI in Providence, available on YouTube. A Slate.com article called An Ingenious New Way of Solving Cold Cases by Michael Nafok. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.